0: Join me, Dr. Kathy Weston, for my podcast series, Get a Grip, brought to you by Tooltop Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life, and education. In each podcast, I help unpick some of the trickier questions relating to how we raise children today. How do we talk to children about mental health? How can we make sure our children engage safely with the digital world? Whose responsibility is the mental health education of our children, teachers or parents? These podcasts get me talking and you thinking. I've reached out to today's thought leaders and main researchers in this area and asked them their views on the areas where we need to get a grip. Tamsin Ford is Professor of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry at the University of Cambridge. She's an internationally renowned child psychiatric epidemiologist who researches the organisation, delivery and effectiveness of services and interventions for children and young people's mental health. Welcome to the podcast, Tamsin. How are you?
1: I'm very well, thank you. It's really lovely to get to speak to you again, Cathy. Thank you
0: for asking me back. Well, Tamsin, a lot has happened since we last spoke, including a global pandemic, You've moved to Cambridge, and I think you were even the recipient of a CBE, so congratulations.
1: Thank you. Yes, life life has changed a huge amount. I'm delighted to be at Cambridge. I'm really enjoying working in the Department of Psychiatry there. But in fact, because of the pandemic and also the age of my own children, who had a year of school left to complete, I've only literally moved to Cambridge about two weeks ago so very much finding my
0: feet. Wonderful. Well, congratulations on that move. And so like you, you're a parent, like all of us listening, and it's the beginning of the summer holidays. And I think, I don't know if you'd agree, but there's a little bit of a tension between whether or not we should just let our teenagers, our children sort of do whatever they like this summer, given the year they've been through, or a different approach, which might be, Thinking about the fact they've been denied social contact, perhaps denied the opportunity to do lots of different social sporting activities. And maybe we should be sort of amplifying those opportunities over the summer. Also, in addition to that, there's some concern amongst parents and educators about learning loss. And there's a tension again. Should we be getting them to be doing reading over the summer? Should we be letting them relax? What's your general view on how parents should approach the summer, given the year we've had?
1: Well, I think all of us, parents included, need a rest. I look around my colleagues and my family and my friends and I see some very tired people. So I think we've all had a difficult time. We've all had additional things to juggle. And I think each family will, and each child will be in their own individual circumstances. So I think it's very hard to make global recommendations. But we do need rest and relaxation. Now, for some people, relaxation is hiking up a mountain. So that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to go and lie on a beach or lie by a swimming pool. But I think we need to make sure that there is space for some of the activities that we love and derive emotional nourishment if you want from we all need to regenerate a bit in these summer months so i certainly wouldn't be recommending you know additional schoolwork for children and young people i think it might just put a gear for child is not particularly interested in learning it will give a focus to arguments and disputes between parents and children which is not what they need i think i imagine there are many parents who now have a very healthy respect for what teachers do having tried to intermittently homeschool and actually if you are not well rested and if you are emotionally not in a good place you're not going to learn and i think the emotional and well-being catch-up that we all need is as important, if not more important, than the learning loss. That you know, all the children of a particular age group will be in the same boat. So I think it's more important to try and re-establish peer relationships, particularly for the younger children who will have found it hard to keep in touch via social media in the way that teenagers can. And, you know, I think we're not yet, immunising under 18s. And secondary school children have less risk than the elderly of getting very ill. But it's now clear that they can get the virus, although the risk of hospitalisation or death is very small. We don't yet know about long COVID. So I would be encouraging outdoor activities and outdoor socializing and with social distancing and masks and things. If children and parents are worried about others in their family who might be vulnerable or shielding, which I know is a big issue for some children, they worry a lot about bringing the infection back into their households.
0: So a sort of a Proactive but cautious approach, and as much outdoor time, you know, hopefully with peers as as we can fit in. Yeah, yeah, Lovely. absolutely,
1: absolutely. I don't think you can do too much of it. And I think also we've all been inside and glued to screens much more than we would be. For example, at a school, you would normally get up and walk across the school between each lesson. And when you know what's happening to me is, I'm, and I'm sure it's similar for many people, I sit down at my desk and I kind of do a long haul flight every day. So actually, I think we all need to get outside and move around more than we have
0: been. And I think lockdown, as you know, as the research has looked at, has been incredibly disruptive. There has been a period of enormous change across work habits, learning habits Sleep habits, eating habits. It has exposed so much in terms of what we rely on and all those lovely, I suppose, protective assets that exist in our lives that were stripped away. So there's been a, an enormous period of adaptive coping and adjustment. And maybe we're in a period now of sort of recalibration. You know, we're tired, we're trying to make sense of what's happened as families.
1: I think so. But I think we also need to realise that actually experience is very mixed. So in the Oxwell survey of sort of over 200 schools around the south and southeast of England, but also in the national survey, which was across the whole of England, whilst most children thought that lockdowns had, had made their life worse or much worse, And that, it won't surprise you, that was strongly associated with poor mental health in the national survey. There was a sizable proportion, sort of somewhere around about a quarter of children and young people who said lockdowns made their life better. And I think it depends on the family and situation in which you are locked down in. So if you are lucky enough to have your own bedroom, somewhere to study, a family with strong positive relationships and easy access to green space, whether it be a garden or common land or a playground that you could get outside into. That's very different from perhaps having one tablet or smartphone for the family and being very overcrowded in a small flat in a high rise in a, a metropolitan city centre with very limited access to parks all green space and a high density of population that means, you know, getting to them and even being in them, it's very hard to socially distance. So I think, you know, people's situations vary. I think the other reason why some children and families may have found lockdown easier is sadly our, our schools do wonderful work and they are great places for most children and young people, but there is a sizeable proportion for whom school is a real struggle and actually not having to get up and deal with bullying face-to-face or social anxiety or whatever it is that's making it difficult. Being able to tap into school remotely and go at your own pace has meant that some children have had better access to education than they
0: have for years. And would you agree that some schools are in a sort of a quandary about that because they recognise that some pupils not only might be happier at home doing remote learning, but also engage better in lessons? And I've certainly heard that anecdotally from educators that they're encouraged, obviously, to bring all children into school. But for some children, there seems to be a resistance to do that upon transitioning back in.
1: Yes, and I'm not surprised. I think there are two kind of groups of children this might apply to. So severe anxiety, particularly if it has a social element to it, schools are very, very sociable places, particularly from secondary school up. And that for some children can just be overwhelming. And there are a sizable proportion of children who are not able to get to school because of such mental health conditions. and such children and families need support. But actually, we want to minimise the loss to learning whilst we are trying to deal with their anxiety. And yes, ideally, we want to get them back into school. But for some children, that's really, really hard. So it's a fine line between, you know, providing an option that means at least they're accessing some education And then being out of education and i think the other group that will struggle with the repeated closures and reopening are children with neurodevelopmental problems particularly those on the autistic spectrum or with that kind of rigidity because of the fact that minor changes that would not really impact other children and families are just really difficult hurdles for these children and they have had to cope with so much change And then they're going back into a school that's really changed. It's not the school that they remember. And for some of these young people, they will need a lot of support to kind of get them over that bump.
0: And I think I've heard you mention through the course of the pandemic and different lectures and things that, you know, the parents of children with special educational needs have been adversely affected in many cases because a lot of the support systems that they may have relied on sort of evaporated in some cases.
1: Absolutely. I think... My sense, and this is anecdotal, not data-based, is that it's not across the board, but sadly, I hear many more reports of reduced support. I don't think I've heard any of increased support. And certainly, there was disruptive support. So, you have a child who you have support to help you cope with them as a family, and suddenly, they're not going to school. And suddenly that support's there and they can't cope with change and their behaviour becomes disruptive as a result. You can see just how hard that would be to deal with. I think the special schools alternative provision did stay open because they are so vital to some of our most vulnerable families. But in fact, the take up wasn't always as high as you might think. And I think that was because there are other vulnerabilities, and so children and their families were worried about going into a situation where they might pick up the infection and bring it back. And I know of families where that happened. So it was, you know, it wasn't an unrealistic fear at the peak of the pandemic.
0: That's right. And sort of, there seems to be some sort of rises in health anxiety among different groups, totally understandably, which is an ongoing issue, isn't it?
1: Yes, I don't think it surprises anybody that. Those of us, whether children, young people or adults, who are a bit more on the anxious side of things. And actually, you know, anxiety is a normal human emotion. It's there for a reason. There are times when being a bit cautious and wary may well be life-saving, you know. So it's not that all anxiety is a bad thing. But when there is something that is a real threat to life that you cannot see, that you need to wash your hands, that you need to use you know, you need to use social distancing, which sadly doesn't feel quite so odd. But I found it really hard not to shake hands or greet people in ways that, you know, it's just so intrinsic and sort of There's an odd dance you do when you walk past somebody in the street where you kind of acknowledge them and sort of there's a sort of shuffling nod backwards and forwards of, I know you're there and we can't come close, but I want to acknowledge you. You know, it's all very, very unnatural and it's not surprising that the more anxious of us are focusing on, on health worries, particularly worries of picking up the infection and infecting others. And so we're seeing that reflected in children as well as adults.
0: I mean, you mentioned doing that sort of dance in the street, you know, in a sort of a cooperative way. There's a sort of an unspoken (laughs) agreement that you would respect each other's space. Would you agree that I think there's some evidence emerging to this effect that during the pandemic, you know, the clapping on the Thursday night, all those kinds of community initiatives were ignited, that sense of community cohesion in many cases was really strengthened and that that might be a sort of a benefit, a COVID keep that might be able to be sustained into the near future. It
1: depends on the community. So I think, you know, there are some lovely examples of people really helping people out. So, you know, I think my local shop where I was living during the first lockdown on, on the edge of Exeter was absolutely swamped with volunteers offering to drop food off to elderly people who wouldn't be able to get to the shops, you know, and that, that's just sort of one example of how people came together to sew face masks and sew scrubs, the clapping for frontline workers, you know, all of that was fantastic. But at the same time, we have these sort of awful divisions in terms of people who think that, you know, COVID is vastly overplayed and lockdowns, you know, there's also an awful lot of conflict. And if you think about the anti-vaccine, anti-COVID demonstration on Sunday where, you know, somebody was comparing our current NHS workers with people on trial at Nuremberg after the Holocaust, I mean... That to me was so shocking. So, I think there are both forces at work. And it's really good to see the positive ones reported in the media because they're not very often. And I think we do need to hang on to those and build on those. And we need to challenge the more negative and try and avoid allowing, you know, various sort of the media or you know various groups to exploit dissent between people there's a very good article in the the guardian today about um you know the the media really needs to avoid trying to play scientists off against one another because science is all about you know discussion and debate and gathering data and reviewing the data and the data will change it has changed what and in many ways, what we've learned about coronavirus and the development of a vaccine and the deployment of a vaccine is absolutely incredible. But scientists should disagree with each other and should debate, but it shouldn't turn into an awful conflict. That's not part of the scientific process and it doesn't have any part i think in a healthy society
0: and i think from a parenting perspective everything that you've just mentioned there is great there's a responsibility i think on parents to talk about and teach media literacy at home and to make sure that we are nudging our children towards using reputable sources of information asking them to critique and question what they see and hear i think that there's a good opportunity now to to do that
1: i really agree and it was something i think my children were very well very well taught in secondary school so they've left school now but i i'm i think they are much savvier than i was at that age and they really think about where information is coming from and what might be the intent behind putting that information out in that way and those are really good life skills critical appraisal critical analysis Those are the kind of things that aren't necessarily measured by GCSEs, but actually they will stand you in really good stead, whatever kind of job you go out. It's the kind of thing that employers really want to see, those kind of soft skills, being able to problem solve, being able to critically think and creatively address problems, being able to build relationships. You know, so those are, you know, coming circling back to your first question. You know, the, the reason why it'd be great to get children together in activities outside during this summer is that actually not only have they not had a chance to learn the academic skills, whilst there's been less contact with peers, it's all those softer skills have also been stalled. And actually, they may not be measured by GCSEs, but they're arguably more important.
0: Absolutely. And I know anecdotally, many parents have worried about the sort of depletion in social skills and children meeting up for a play date post pandemic and ending up on their phones because they've sort of lost the ability to even interact, how to have a conversation, what to talk about, because everything was about gaming for for a long period of time. Yes. So in terms of children's and young people's mental health, I'm afraid I've got a little list here. Uh, and okay. it's not just it's not just a list I've come up with on my own. This is you know we've done lots of interviews with with researchers like Dasha Nichols with Kathy Cresswell. We've kept in touch with the research community, and we and I've been to many of your talks and lectures and conferences in recent months. So I just want to touch base on some of these issues because educators schools are very aware that there are emerging issues that everyone's talking about in school communities and are worried about at the moment. So I'm going to run through them. The first one is a rise in anxiety tics. That is something that many schools have mentioned and we've done a little bit of work on it as a research team. We've been looking at, there was a great study came out of Great Ormond Street. We're seeing a particular range of tics amongst teenage girls. That's one issue I'd like to discuss A rise in eating disorders, which seems to be on the top of everyone's agenda, uh, certainly in schools. And I've been asked about that issue many times. OCD traits in children who otherwise would not have uh, had a history of anxiety. And another one is disruptive behavior in the classroom, which seems to be, I've had many schools mention that to me as something that you know, it took quite a while for behaviour to settle down after children returned to school. So maybe we could have a little chat about those. OK, well, if we
1: start with the tics or these sort of florid movements, which mimic ticks, But I think my understanding, and I'm not an expert in this area, is that it's not quite the same as a chronic tick disorder, but it's a sort of persistent, often very florid set of movements that's really disruptive. And it is really interesting because I've met young people like this. You would see them from time to time, but that it does seem to be quite a common reaction. And It's really interesting to hear you talk about it in the school context, because I've only heard about it from the people I know who work in mental health services alongside paediatricians in acute hospitals who have just seen far more of these young people than they have normally. I suspect that's linked to what we talked about earlier, which is a general rise in anxiety and also depression. And so even pre-pandemic, those particular mental health conditions, so the severer end of the spectrum, were increasing. And I think what we've seen during the pandemic is those that were experiencing some difficulties, but but perhaps not at a clinical level, have been tipped by the sort of added stressors that have have stacked up into clinical presentations, of which these ticky type movements is one. And OCD is another very common one. So uh, one common obsession which then may be leading to compulsions to wash your hands is a fear of germs. And, you know, we've all been told and instructed many times to fear germs. Well, if you're somebody who's on the more perfectionistic side of things that can become a focus for anxiety and once you get into the cycle of feeling like well I have to keep washing my hands in order to for the you know to feel like I've dealt with the germs it can get very impairing very quickly and can be tricky to dismantle but there are effective treatments for anxiety so you know a little bit of this is probably normal but if it spills over to the point where it's getting in the way of everyday life and it's going on for weeks as opposed to you know a few days here and there, then I think it is time to go and seek help either via your GP or via resources within school. The eating disorders picture is really worrying because eating disorders are most common in, in young women, but usually around you know older teenagers and those in their early twenties but we have seen a massive increase, a doubling of urgent referrals alongside an increase in routine referrals between last year and the year before. And that suggests to us that more young people are presenting to services, but they're doing so at a later state. And eating disorders are serious. They do need to be treated. There are treatments that are effective and useful, but we really need to be getting young people with these conditions into treatment quickly. I should say, for any of your listeners who want to know where they can find good quality information about these conditions, in terms of eating disorders, there's a charity called Beat, who work with people of all ages, and they have superb materials. There is also MindEd which has a section for parents and also a section for professionals working with children who aren't mental health specialists. And they have sort of topics like eating disorders will be one, OCD will be another. And then the Emerging Mind Net Network has lots of resources for parents,
0: teachers and young people. Lovely. And we regularly flag those to parents as well. I think in terms of earlier intervention a, a, a lot of people talk about the need for early intervention when it comes to eating disorders but that's quite difficult to sort of identify and sort of pinpoint what we can be doing in general in family life so that you know we're not in a situation of of needing to seek clinical help
1: i think it is a tricky issue and i think if you talk to people who work in pediatrics or in Eating disorders teams, this is something that exercises them quite a lot because every year when there's been healthy eating week at school, there will be a couple of children presenting afterwards, having got themselves into sort of, if not a frank eating disorder, then heading towards it. However, we also have an obesity problem as well, which is equally unhealthy and not great for your mental health. So I think. We need to do something about our attitude to food. And I think in terms of preventing mental ill health and promoting mental health, there are PSHE topics that should involve things like being aware of your emotions, being able to talk about them, developing self-awareness of your particular character type. Some people will be more or less anxious. Some people will be more or less emotionally volatile. Some people will be more or less active and we're all different and that's great. We should be all different. But if you're aware of your particular makeup and what you find stressful and what you find relaxing and rewarding, then you can try and balance your life out so that you can manage your mental health. You know what is likely to deplete your mood or make you anxious or or upset or angry and irritable and be able to step in so that rather than reacting, you are choosing to act, which is very different. And likewise, I think a lot of the things I mentioned earlier, like problem solving, emotional regulation, conflict resolution, managing relationships, working together, all those soft skills are also very important for your mental health and well-being. And then I think in relation to behaviour in the classroom, which I didn't touch on, that is a particular issue, uh, a particular interest of mine. Um, So the STARS trial, which reported a couple of years ago now, 2018, demonstrated that helping teachers with a very structured course on managing their classrooms in a positive way, so you pay as little attention as possible to the minor disruption that you can ignore, and obviously there are some things you can't, but for the things you can ignore, you focus on the child who is doing what you want rather than the child who is not doing what you want. And that is in in a space where there are very clear expectations of what you want and very clear instructions about what you want with very clear consequences for the child who either does or does not do what is expected. Most excitingly, it showed the biggest and most sustained impact on children whose mental health and behaviour was poorest at the beginning of the trial. And in fact, the effect on low-level disruption and also improved concentration as well as general mental health was still there in a second academic year after the children had been taught by a teacher who went on this course. And so that study is being replicated at the moment in a bigger and better trial funded by the education endowment fund and the the results should be out at christmas but there's quite a lot of evidence about this this kind of an approach which we gathered together in a practitioner review funded by the education endowment foundation which is available on their, their website so that might be of use to your teacher colleagues who are struggling and i'm not surprised they're struggling you know, with children who are very unsettled and they're coming back to peer groups that will have shifted, but in a much more perceptible way. And they're renegotiating all those social hierarchies and just not used to being in a school situation or around people even for a whole school day. And I think we'll probably see a bit more of it after the summer.
0: And Tamsin, I know you've written quite a lot for the TES. You know, I read your articles quite regularly in that. And I know that you'd written pre-pandemic about poor mental health amongst teachers. It's always (laughs) been an interest of yours. And we talked about poor mental health being rife, burnout being rife amongst teachers pre-pandemic. And I think teachers, you know, have just done such an amazing job that it's hard to even you know, contemplate what they've been through. And I just wanted to dwell for a moment on how school communities can help their staff over the next academic year and just some of the sort of actions that we could think about so that a mentally healthy school culture is really at the forefront of leaders' minds, if you like.
1: Well, I think that's a very good point. I think many teachers that I know have not had a break at all since the pandemic hit 18 months ago. And one hopes that they are able to take more of a holiday, although obviously those working with GCSE and A-level groups will have loads of work to do in the summer. And I guess we've been through one and a half academic years where we've had to you know, mix and match what we're doing and teachers have risen to the challenge admirably. But I think we also need to acknowledge that we're all human. And we all have our limits. We all need to rest. And like every other group of society, teachers will have had family members who may have been ill or even died. They will have all these other pressures and we need to allow teachers to look after themselves. So I think the way people do that is perhaps providing a safe space for people to talk to each other if they are feeling stressed, or encouragement to engage in in activities that are stress-relieving. And those will be different for different people. For some people, mindfulness works. For some people, yoga works. For other people, it's running or kickboxing or curling up in a corner with a book or a film. I get a little worried when I hear about schools wanting to make certain activities mandatory because i think everybody's different and what is one person's relaxation is somebody else's horrendous torture and we you know first do no harm but i think it's about having good channels of communication it's about saying how are you are you alright it's about having each other's backs and you know allowing people to rest we've had a really really tough 18 months And I think, you know, the six week holiday is really important this time round.
0: I think it's important as well that colleagues are able to recognise when their colleague is highly stressed or burnt out as well. I think in my experience, you know, teachers in particular are just have so much stamina and they're so altruistic. They just want to help. You know, they'll just do Mm. anything to help other people, but often at great detriment to their own well-being.
1: I agree. And I think that was behind my remark about saying, you know, how are you, you know, allowing people to talk and, and allowing it to be all right to say, you know, today, I'm finding it hard. I think it's similar in other frontline professions. You know, we're often medics, nurses, policemen, teachers, social workers out of a real sense of duty and vocation. And therefore, you feel like you're letting people down if you don't go in or if you say, I can't do this extra thing. And I think it's allowing people to say, no, I can't take on this extra thing at this point in time, or having somewhere where it's okay to go and talk to someone, it doesn't necessarily have to be someone in the school, to say, I'm really struggling at the moment, I just need to talk to somebody. So you know, to help me kind of sort this out in my head and, and to help me through until it passes because normally it does pass.
0: And the other thing that seems to be working, certainly in some universities that where I've worked, they have a peer coaching culture where you sort of formalise that peer support. And that seems to be terribly effective where you say, you know, I need 10 minutes of your time and that person is sort of encouraged to give their colleague 10 minutes of listening and those sorts of little peer interventions can, be, can really enhance well-being, I think.
1: I, th- I think that's a way of scaffolding exactly the kind of culture that I've been talking. I, I don't know if anyone's done a trial of that kind of an approach, but intuitively it will encourage honest communication and listening. It's not just the person telling you how they feel. They need to feel heard and they need to feel understood and they need to feel that they're not being judged.
0: Yeah, fantastic. That's absolutely correct. And I think that making sure that everyone knows that we're all in the same boat in whatever work culture you're in. And I think the developing of empathy for your colleagues' position is always helpful.
1: I agree. And I think also teachers and other educators and many others on the front line also need to be gentle with themselves. I think we're probably much harsher in our self-criticism than we would ever be about a colleague. And sometimes it's so quick and so kind of ingrained in our ways of thinking, you don't catch how awful you're being to yourself with your internal sort of monologue and thoughts. But actually... We all
0: need to give ourselves a break. Tamsin, something that I came across today with great joy that I shared with my research assistant was something on your website, which referred back to your work at the University of Exeter. And it was a little questionnaire for pupils to fill in about how Mm -hmm. they're feeling about their school. And the reason I mention it is because at the start of the new school academic year in September, I always think it's a great idea for schools to audit how everyone's feeling or how they're doing and how staff are feeling. And I just mention it because... What do you think in general of schools being able to use tools like that in a sort of self-sufficient way? It was very exciting to come across it because, as you mentioned on that part of the website, you know, schools can use that and you provide them with the tools to analyze the results as well. And I think it's brilliant for schools to have those snapshots of how people are feeling in the school community over time.
1: Well, we developed the questionnaire for the STARS trial because I wanted to have the children's voices in there. It was really important to me, but there aren't many questionnaires that four-year-olds can fill in. So it's very, very simple. And in fact, it's generated quite a lot of interest. So it's been used by studies in Oxford and in other faculties across the UK and translated into an array of different languages. I mean, what I haven't seen your, you know, we haven't evaluated it as a screen. I think it could be used by schools if they wanted to get a temperature check of the whole school. The other way it could be used is to open up a conversation with a child. So if you sat down as a SENCO or pastoral support person with an individual child and you filled it in as a conversation, it might because it sort of takes the focus off slightly, the questions you're asking, it might open up a conversation about how they're doing. So it could either be used in a very targeted way or used to kind of take a temperature check. And it's free, it's on a, on the Exeter Medical School website. And as I say, there's a funny array of languages. I think we've got Swedish, Chinese, I'm not sure that's on the website yet because it's not been validated. <laughs>
0: Persian
1: and Italian. And I think there's a German one in the offing as well.
0: <laughs> Fantastic. Truly international. It was just such a beautiful little tool that I know uh, so many school settings would would enjoy using with confidence. Two last questions. I'm sure you've been aware of the Everyone's Invited movement. I've certainly over the yeah. past few months been heavily involved with helping schools make sense of that and the implications. And bringing it back to parenting again, I think I just wanted to get your take on that movement and also what needs to happen within schools, within family life. For example, talking about issues around consent, body boundaries making sure that parents are having brave conversations about relations, relationships, how we form relationships, how we sustain relationships. I just wanted to hear what you thought should be some of the priorities following that movement for schools and families.
1: Well, I think it's a very timely movement. I think some of the content is frankly horrifying, but, you know, we all knew it kind of went on, but this has kind of really lifted up the rock and, and shown everything that's going on underneath. And, you know, my own daughters are 19, so something I've sort of worried about and thought about a lot in the last few years. I'm not an expert in this area, but I had a colleague who was working in this area, Astrid Janssens, who was doing a project, with young people about what they wanted to know, what they would find useful. And I think a lot of it is about negotiation and being able to communicate well and being able to listen. And I think what's happening in schools is what's happening in wider society. And I think we all need to take a very hard look at ourselves at what we tolerate. Um, We all need to get better at stepping in if we see somebody being made uncomfortable and i i think people are the me too and everybody's invited has kind of raised people's willingness not only women but i think particularly women to step in if they see a young girl who's clearly not wanting advances of someone who's being a bit persistent. But I think we need to equip our young people, both young men and young women, with a proper understanding of consent and good social skills. And the rest should follow.
0: Brilliant. And my very last question. Recently, I read a paper which you contributed to in the Journal of American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry with, I think the lead author was Stephanie uh, is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. On, on self harm. And I just, I was just reading it yesterday and I was really struck by, I don't know if the, how this sits within the general literature on self harm, but it was very striking that among those that had self harmed in that particular paper at 14, I think the paper seemed to say that there was a lot of that self harming behavior it could be predicted almost a decade before that there seemed to be a great opportunity for early prediction, early intervention when it came to self-harm. Could you just talk a little bit about that paper and where it sits in terms of what we already know about self-harm?
1: Well, I think it's a really interesting analysis. And my contribution was to kind of put the clinical spin on it. So the lead investigator, Stephanie, use data from the Millennium Cohort Study. So this is a study of youngsters born about the turn of the century who are now in their early 20s who've been followed at intervals. And we had a lot of background. I think that also it's one of the only birth course where they really worked hard to make sure that they had proper representation from children and families of ethnic minorities and who were socially, economically disadvantaged, you know, the groups that quite often don't get involved in these studies. And I think what they showed was if you looked at the children who self-harmed at 14 and compared them to the peers who didn't, there were two kind of separate groups. So there was a group where it would be much harder to see it coming. They seemed to be doing absolutely fine and You know, the problems seem to arrive out of nowhere in adolescence. But there was another group where they were facing all kinds of different adversities and their mental health was poor beforehand. And I think this is another indication that children who um, have mental health conditions or poor mental health, it's not just a transient phase. We can't just think, oh, they'll grow out of it. That's why we need to intervene early. Because some of these young people who self-harmed at 14, had they had effective support earlier on, might not have self-harmed, let alone the other disruption to their development and their education and their peer relationships, etc., that's going on whilst they're facing these challenges without adequate support.
0: The two things that again stood out for me was the mention of sleep problems and low self esteem as potential predictors, as areas that we need to pay attention to in our parenting much earlier on.
1: I totally agree. I think, you know, sleep is underrated as something that's terribly important for both physical and mental health. And so, really helping parents of very young children to get them into good sleeping habits earlier on. You know, there are sleep hygiene programs, which are really, really effective. I'll give you a funny anecdote. I had a community paediatrician colleague who was involved in a trial of melatonin for sleep problems. But in order to be eligible for the trial, you had to go through sleep training with a highly qualified, trained paediatric nurse who actually had the time to do it properly, which I think is often the problem in the nhs ordinary provision that you can't get intense enough treatment and the trial folded because actually if you had the proper sleep hygiene treatment nobody needed the melatonin (laughs) so these techniques they're not easy to put in place because if they were people would do them anyway and i know so many parents who had a child who slept the first time who then were unlucky enough to have a child who didn't sleep and were a lot more sympathetic with their colleagues, you know, with their peers who had children who had sleep problems. It, You know, you get so, so tired anyway as a parent of very young children. If they're not sleeping, it's dreadful for you and dreadful for them, which is why people end up in a real pickle sometimes. But absolutely, we should be working really hard to improve sleep and to ensure that people understand the importance of good quality sleep and diet and physical exercise, all of which helps not only physical health, but mental health too.
0: And I think back to your talk about balance in in any family unit, in any school community, it's always about balance, isn't it? And making sure we're sort of all moving in the same direction and prioritising the same things. You know, sleep is something potentially schools don't pay too much attention to because it's out of their control. But I think by drawing students' attention to the criticality of good sleep quality, I think young people are actually very sensible and can put in some changes themselves that could arguably have a a very positive effect on their mental health. Yeah, agreed, totally. Okay, well, Tamsin, what are you working on now before we leave you? What exciting projects can we tune in and hear all about next year?
1: Well, we're coming to the end of a programme development grant in which we've been testing randomization and training for therapists to deliver mindfulness-based cognitive therapy for teenagers with either depression that hasn't responded to a first line treatment completely or those who've had an episode of depression got better but relapsed very quickly. So the idea is to try and get the group for whom MBCT seems most effective in adulthood, which is those who either have a background of abuse or adverse childhood experience and or who have had three episodes of depression. But by the time you've had three good going episodes of depression, your life can be quite adversely affected. So if we could home in on that group earlier, it would be a fantastic way to get them back on track and and keep them well. So that's one thing. And we are continuing to follow up the English National Survey. So there is data that was gathered in late spring that will be published shortly and a further survey coming up in October.
0: Fantastic. Well, thank you on behalf of the nation for all the hard work that you put into your research and your practice. And thank you for your time. And we look forward so much to hearing about all those projects and how they're going in 2022. So all the very best, Tamsin, and have a lovely summer. Thank you. And you. Thank you. This Get a Grip podcast is brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. www.tooledupeducation.com Parents and teachers in Tooled Up schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the Tooled Up site.